Welcome to Nature Centered, a podcast from Wild Birds Unlimited about feeding the birds and enjoying nature right in your own backyard. Here are your hosts, naturalists John Schaust and Brian Cunningham. Hi everyone, I'm John Schaust. And I am Brian Cunningham. And welcome to episode number 47 of our Nature Centered podcast. Today, with the GBBC, the Great Backyard Bird Count, getting ready to kick off in just a few days, a special guest from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Becky Radomsky-Bish, who's the project leader for the Great Backyard Bird Count. So we're going to get all kinds of great inside information about the GBBC from the expert. And then we're going to spend a little time kind of helping you think about how the bird foods that you put out for the Great Backyard Bird Count will make a difference in the birds you might be able to see. Yes, and if you have ever entered any data into the Merlin app or eBird, where does that information go? Does it even help? We're going to hear a little bit about, you know, how does that information help other people? And how can it help you? And you might even hear about how it helped me find a rare bird while on vacation. Maybe it'll help you find birds. So some fun things to bring in today. And we are really excited to have Becca as our guest today. Right, John? That's right. And we get to hear about the vacation. (laughs) I love it, Brian. Well, I've tried to put it off because <laughs> I'm going to be so jealous, but we we did kind of promise people that we were going to hear about Brian's birds on his vacation. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would be happy to talk about that, and I'm excited to talk about it too. Because you used eBird, right? I did not have really any time to investigate the birds before going on vacation. You know, who's there? Who can I expect? What? So I used eBird. And I didn't have a chance really to use eBird until I was there. All I had to do was pull up the Merlin app and say, this is where I am. What birds should I expect? And boom, I got a short list. And then I could even from that list uh, mark off, use a little toggle switch that says, um, show me only the birds that I've never seen before. So that really minimized things down. And I could really pay attention much more closely, more clearly. It could help me. So I had a lot of fun with that. Found about two dozen new species that I've not seen before. Uh, So really, really wonderful time with that. Um, And that was all on Kauai. But then we went to Oahu and I got about another dozen species. Um, But near the end of the vacation, it was the last couple days, uh, we were on one of the coastal shores. Uh, There's a bird sanctuary at the end of this trail. There were lace and albatross nesting. So here's mom sitting on eggs like 10 yards from us, from the trail. Uh, Oh, it's absolutely amazing. Black-footed albatross, all sorts of cool things. We were taking a break on a rock next to this coastal shore that has all this lava rock and some sandy beach areas. And this bird flew right past us. And I went, oh, it's just another Pacific golden plover. (laughs) You know, just another. They seemed, they were like everywhere the first time I saw one. I was super excited. My wife's like, how come you're not as excited anymore about that bird? I'm like, because we see it about every 10 times we turn around. Don't just assume when a bird shows up that it's going to be that bird. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to it. Take a look at it. And this is really true for your backyard too. And I'm looking at I'm like, that is not a plover. And I'm looking at all the clues and I'm like, this is a shorebird. And it turns out it was a gray-tailed tattler. 
And there are wandering tattlers that you can find in the mainland of North America, you know, Canada, um, from Alaska on down and into the lower 48. The gray-tailed tattler is very, very similar, but there are some minute clues that are differences between it. So I was really, really excited to be able to find this bird. Um, it's considered a rare species for that location and time frame, so I had to put a lot of detail information into my eBird report, but really excited get to find this amazing bird because <laughs> I didn't just make an assumption and move on. Mm -hmm. I birded the bird and um, eBird, uh, the Merlin app, all that data, anyone who's ever entered data helps populate all that database for behind the scenes. And that helped me to find some birds and really enjoy my time and enjoy figuring out some of the birds very quickly in a new place for me. Very so, John, cool. I know you had a, a bird closer to home. Yeah, I have nothing to be jealous about, Brian. So, <laughs> because I got a bird that I've never seen at my feeders in 40 years. First time ever in 40 years. Isn't that amazing? That's absolutely fascinating. And I'm like, what do you it's mean? E You've never seen this bird in 40 it's, years. It's, You've been feeding birds a long time. It's even more fascinating when I tell you it was a parakeet. <laughs> I literally was sitting here and I'm looking at the face underneath my hopper feeder and this strangely colored bird is underneath my feeders and I grab my optics and look at it and it turned out to be a parakeet and it stuck around for about 15 minutes feeding off the ground and I haven't seen it since. So, but that was an amazing thing and it does bring to mind if you think about it, how many birds may show up in your backyard when you're just not there watching, you know, and, right. and in that particular case, I was in the right place at the right time, but that was a very amazing thing to go. What is that in my feeder? So that was cool. That is so cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Becca, we want to hear what, uh, what's going on in your yard, but before I just want to let everybody know that you actually graduated with a master's from Antioch university in environmental science. And you've an author in the sense of written dozens of articles about habitat and ecology. And, and I understand that you're a self-professed avid gardener and birder. So Becca, welcome to our little humble podcast and let me know what's been going on in your yard or in, in the world of birds. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction, John. Yeah. So I, I like to say that I practice what I preach and uh, <laughs> I really love birds and the way that I try to help my birds in addition to feeding them is I really feed them with my property. So um, yeah. a previous position at the lab, that was my focus is how do we create habitat to conserve our bird populations and feed them year round. So my native gardens are bumping right now. I have cardinals and finches and juncos enjoying those seed heads that I left over. Um, I had a beautiful group of cedar waxwings in my crabapple nice, tree. Nice, and I'm jealous. Red osier dogwoods, yeah. So I yeah. really, really believe in feeding the birds as much as I can on my land, as much as my feeders. Absolutely, absolutely. I do. I would be remiss. I know Evan, who is our producer, uh, is enamored with the fact that your actual degree, your initial degree, was in anthropology, and somehow you made the switch to ornithology. So our environmental science, actually. But go ahead. That's right. Yeah. I mean. Gosh, I'm, I'm several years out of my degree now, but um, I, loved, <laughs> I loved biology. I just loved my courses. And then I started to get really interested in the environmental piece. And, you know, 
humans have a big role to play in how and why we are or are not conserving um, habitat and saving animals that we are losing. And so I realized I needed to understand people more. So I jumped over to the anthropology and I use that in tandem because what we're really seeing now today is that if we want conservation to take hold, if we want people to do things to preserve habitat in and around their homes and communities, we have to know what resonates with people. We have to talk to the people um, and get them hooked on how mm -hmm, amazing mm -hmm. things like birds are. And then we can go that next extra level with actually, you know, bringing the birds back. So I really, it's it's unusual to have that human biology yeah. connection, but it really has helped um, in the world of conservation. I think it's fantastic. I mean, really, it's a great combination and you're, you're spot on because we're not going to have change unless we understand what people, what motivates people to change. So this is, this is a great tool, great combination. up just a hair. I mean, Brian, you and I talk about the Cornell Lab of Ornithology all the time, and we talk about eBird and Merland and all kinds of Project Feeder Watch, but I don't know that we've ever gone into any kind of detail about really what the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is all about. So, Becca, inform us. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. And to be honest, the lab has grown in an immense amount in the last decade. Um, our main kind of mission in terms of what we say we do is to interpret and conserve the Earth's biological diversity through research, education, and citizen science. So GBBC is is kind of hits all of those, to be quite honest, but certainly it's, it's well known as being one of the oldest uh, citizen science projects that the lab has hosted. But I really want to emphasize that everybody listening here is really the bedrock of what we do because we're based on engaging the public. And if we didn't have people eBirding, mm -hmm. if we didn't have people doing Merlin, if we didn't have people doing Global Big Days and Great Backyard Bird Count, we wouldn't have the data to be able to really push our systems in these new pioneering directions. So really yeah. people that are doing the bird watching are really doing the heavy lifting for us. And we are so grateful that people around the world really love birds. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing. So we do want to kind of circle back now and, and get to the real reason we have Becca on board with us today. And that's the great backyard bird count. And, and, you know, Becca, you can really provide us with some insights that, that, you know, Brian and I are pretty, pretty knowledgeable and been around the GBBC forever, but not, not in the way you are. So, you know, we, we really would like to hear your side of the story and some of the neat things that uh, maybe goes on at the lab and what you guys learned at the lab from the data from the GBBC and from eBird. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So one of the reasons I love this project is it's a great entry level project for people that maybe are real new to birding and they happen to maybe have a feeder or they like to just admire the birds on their walk and they want to tell us about them all the way up to people maybe like Brian, who maybe goes to locations and really focuses on birds and wants to tell us what they see. So it's a great project because no matter where you fall on the spectrum in terms of your love and interest and passion in birds, this is a tool and a project that you can engage in. Um, so the GBBC, a lot of people don't realize it's one of my favorite factoids about it is that those of you um, that are listening who are Merlin and eBird users, you might be wondering, oh yeah, those tools, they've been around forever. They really haven't. They're, they're very new. GBBC predates those tools, right? And so when scientists started to realize if we really want to have our finger on the pulse of what's happening with birds, we need to have tools, but we need to have lots of eyes on the ground. 
and scientists can't be everywhere all the time, right? So what if we were able mm -hmm. to have projects like the Great Backyard Bird Count where we ask people, wherever you are, tell us what you see. Will people do that? Will people be excited about that? And um, it was overwhelming, the response the first year in 1998 when we ran the Backyard Bird Count, how many people, it was really focused mostly in the United States at that point, how many people told us what birds they saw? It was phenomenal. And so with that information, people at the lab went, wow, people do this. People are into this. What if we made a tool? And boom, a couple years later in 2002, uh, eBird was developed um, and launched. And then Merlin is even younger than that. So it just gets better and better. Brian referenced that in the beginning. The lab just continues to try to be on the edge of what we can provide the public that then will inform the research that then will hopefully conserve and save our bird species. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the uh, 20, 2002 was eBird first online. And I think Brian and I really kind of initially were a little skeptical, uh, you know, when we first looked at, because you know the, the 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 data set was pretty small, and you know, could you really, you know, extrapolate good data from such a small data set? And so we were kind of a little, you know, leery, if you will, initially. But boy, as it kept going and grew so fast, and man, we jumped on it. I came here. I think my oldest records are two thousand eight. I think maybe two thousand seven, something like that, and. Uh, so we jumped on it at that point, and boy, again, how many uh, records are being sent to the eBird at this point in time? How many have you, you know, each year? Do you know the number? Yeah, I don't actually know how many from 2021. I'll have to reference that, but millions of submissions yeah. every year now. Yeah, we had we just reached um, Macaulay Library, which is where we're saving sound and images um, that you can save right into your eBird checklists. Um, we just capped at the end of last year over a million submissions of those alone. So that's not just sightings. Those are people who are taking imagery and recording sounds of birds. So it's taking off. The project itself is growing exponentially. We have more than 500,000 people from around the world that are contributing data all the time to eBird. Wow. So you know, extrapolate that out, right? And yeah. uh, most of them are submitting multiple sightings. It's huge. It's a huge <laughs> well, thing at this point. That'll teach me to be cynical in the future, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's a massive data set. That, actually, that's where I'm at now. It's like, how can you guys store all the data that you're getting? It must be just massive. But you do, and it's a, it's a fantastic tool. Yeah, and I, I love that that data is all accessible to the public. Like... <laughs> When I'm on vacation, or if you're just in your yard, you can pull up Merlin or eBird and say, what birds should I expect here? Now I can narrow down my possibilities really quickly on who's in my yard or not. And so it helps me with that bird identification. It absolutely does. You know, Becca, we do have listeners predominantly in North America, but we do have listeners from around the world. And the apps and the resources, are they in other languages as well? Um, the Merlin app is in, gosh, uh, I want to say 12 languages at this point. Merlin's translated into at least 12 and very similarly for eBird. So both apps can be uh, um, Spanish, French, Portuguese, um, and many others. Yeah, I got a question though real quick. I mean, a lot of people don't get into, you know, they're just birding in their backyard and they're not into eBird and they're not into Merlin. It, can they participate without those tools? That's a really good question. Um, 
so when a long time ago, when uh, <laughs> started, uh, people would submit lists sometimes through the mail. Um, sometimes they would have sort of an aggregator kind of like they still do with the Christmas bird count, um, a compiler. But uh, today in this day and age, in order for us to really be able to utilize the data, it does have to be entered either through Merlin or you can use eBird on your mobile phone or you can use eBird website, the website on a desktop or a laptop. So yeah, in order for the data to count, we really have to have people entering it into those tools. And on the GBBC website, I provide really clear step-by-steps on how to use each of those tools, um, which we, which was new last year. And we have found that it's really helped people that maybe, you know, use maybe a smartphone, but they don't feel real savvy in how to do it. We try to walk people through it to make them feel comfortable and, and confident. But I'm sure you guys can speak to how easy it is to use Merlin. <laughs> and that was a new a new addition last year. Let's just get incidental sightings for GBBC, right? They're just as important to be able yeah. to say, yes, this bird was spotted in this location, at least one of them. And so Merlin is really a user-friendly, easy entry point for people to kind of tell us what they see. Yeah, once you start using it too, you'll think, how did I ever get along without these two tools? Really, they're, they're just, they're truly, I'm, I'm sorry, but I just, I'm geeked out how cool they are and how neat they are, so. Oh, that is for sure. Oh, it's simple, simple to use. I love them. Um, so yeah, we'll definitely have the, the links to some of the GBBC resources in our show notes. So again, this is really a very simple thing for people to participate. And one of the, one of the things though that sometimes is kind of confusing for people is, how do I actually count? I mean, I've, I've got chickadees coming all day long. Do I count every single chickadee or do I count just a number of chickadees that I see at one time? How, how does that all work? Yeah, that that's a frequent question um, that people struggle with. And mostly I just want to ease people's tensions to say, it's all good. Don't, don't get too <laughs> caught up in the detail. That's right. Stay, just enjoy your cup of coffee and uh, take a little tally. Um, but in reality, so we ask people to count for at least 15 minutes. So you may count longer than that, but try and put your counts in a concentrated time. So don't just kind of casually be like, oh, there's a chickadee here at nine and then maybe see another one at noon. We really want you to, to have a concentrated amount of time within which you're watching, but you can have many of those as you want over the day or the whole four days. Um, but in that period, say a half an hour when you're having your morning cup of coffee and you happen to notice a chickadee gone, another chickadee gone, maybe it's the same species, Maybe it isn't. I thought I was seeing the same tip mouse over and over again. And then one day, all four of them were on the feeder at once. And I was like, oh, it's not <laughs> the same. Yeah. They just had a great bumper year, right? So um, just tally it. Every time you see it, tally it. It's okay if there are some duplications. The scientists are on, on our end know how to deal with that. They know how to clean data so that when they're actually going to go ahead and turn around and use it for research, you don't need to worry about the nuances. Just tell us what you see. Every time you see the bird, tick it down. Um, one exception to that is if things like cardinals, right, where you have an obvious male and an obvious female. If you know that you really only have one male and one female and they're just kind of coming back and forth and you chart them, all right, then tell us you have two, right? You have a male and you have a female. But for those monomorphic species like chickadees and jays where you know they males and females, they all look the same. It's very hard to know if it's the same bird. Just tally it and we'll deal with the nuance on our end in terms of how to get the data cleaned. Excellent.
And have you guys talked about the sound ID? We have, but we can do it again. <laughs> yeah, well, just, just a push. Put your phone outside over GBBC weekend and let the phone ID for you, right? It's a lovely tool. Birds may not be singing everywhere, um, but even even some of their just everyday calls, the, the sound ID tool picks up and will ID birds. And those count towards the count as well. Yeah, that's very cool. Matter of fact, I could have used that yesterday, actually. You know, you ever, you ever had that day when it's that first day when you first hear your first bird song? Yes. in regards to spring and the titmice typically in our area the titmice the peter 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 yesterday we had a beautiful sunny somewhat warm day and the titmice just decided it was time to start singing and it was so cool to be able to walk out the door and if i'd had my merlin i could have set it out there and it would have told me that it was a tufted titmouse which is very cool so data wise i mean i know this data is being used by scientists all over the place for different types of research can you elaborate a little bit on that for us Sure. Yeah. So as you alluded to already, the GBBC data goes into a very massive database, um, into the eBird database. And um, when we uh, sort of turn that data around and give it to researchers or sometimes the public um, who are interested in sort of looking at the, the trends and what's going on with bird populations, they can spe specifically ask for data for certain ranges, certain species, certain locations, et cetera, et cetera. So all of the GBBC data, what's beautiful about it is that we have a lot of data from a specific time of year going back 25 years, right? So this is our 25th year of collecting data. So depending on what researchers are looking for, what kinds of questions they're going to be asking and answering, they pull that data along with whatever data set um, they're, you know, they're using to answer their questions. And in 2021 alone, um, the data from the eBird database was used in about 142 different publications. Wow. So all over That's the world. Phenomenal. Yeah. Isn't that an amazing number? Yeah. And, and, you know, it grows every year. People see this data set and you can't get data sets like this as a scientist. You can't go out into the field and collect the amount of data that we're collecting. And so that's the real beauty of it, right? It's spatial diversity. Um, it's uh, a lot of data. And depending on what you're looking at, you can really get some really solid answers. So GBBC data really kind of funnels into a larger effort and a larger database. And depending on what research you're at, researchers are researching and asking, they will use the data. I think that is a really great tangible example. When people hear about, hey, be a citizen scientist. They're like, what does yeah. that mean? <laughs> do I have to be an expert in something? And do I really need to know all my birds? And no, I mean, these the tools that we're talking about, all you gotta do is punch in the information. And if something's kind of wonky, that bird really shouldn't be where it is, they're gonna try to make you confirm that because we talk about lookalikes, well, maybe it's actually the, the more readily uh, occurring bird, and maybe you don't realize that. So it helps you to make sure you're putting in clean data, but any, any markers you put in, like I saw this bird in this spot on this date, you're, being, you're helping scientists, and so hence the term citizen scientist. That's right. That's right. So, yeah. so speaking of tangible and kind of relatable, are, are there specific birds that we can reference that we've maybe learned something about? I know uh, we had talked at one point about hummingbirds and some of the, the trends that this type of data has revealed. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's all kinds of really interesting things that are coming out of data. As your listeners probably know, one of the big influencers with all diversity on the planet, but specifically birds we're seeing too, is how climate is changing and how that's informing and influencing where birds are. So one of the really interesting pieces that's come out of both eBird data and Project Feeder Watch data, some of your listeners may be contributors to Project Feeder Watch as well, is that we've seen this um, range expansion of the um, Annis hummingbird on mm -hmm. the west coast and so this bird which is an amazing little species as anybody who's watched them knows they are <laughs> feisty little creatures um, <laughs> and lots of fun um, they're moving further and further north and they're staying so normally they would migrate further back into um, into sort of the warmer parts of California and the southwest but they're actually staying up north some of them are staying into Canada um, some of them have see been seen in South Alaska through the winter um, wow. part of this wow. is because of yeah people feeding right we I mean hey yeah. the food's there I'm going to stay. Um, so part of the feeding is influencing this too, but also the climate is changing. It's just becoming warmer and it's easier. And these little hummingbirds have the capacity to go into a, a torpor state where they can mm -hmm. kind of shut down their metabolisms at night so they don't have to expend as much energy. And so they can kind of almost like, it's, it's not hibernation. It's a very different thing, but they don't have to expend as much energy. So you can see how that might be a benefit in sort of the uh, warmer climates. Now, what's gorgeous about that is the Anna's hummingbirds can be seen further north. But what's tr also somewhat, um, we're not sure, it could be problematic, but we're seeing declines in some of the other hummingbirds that share territory and range with these birds. So we're seeing competition with Allen's hummingbirds uh, and yeah. Rufus. And so we're seeing those populations decline. And the question becomes, is that because the Annas are staying and they're establishing territory and hummingbirds yeah. are incredibly territorial and that's influencing other bird populations. So it's really fascinating. Again, this is why data is so valuable because we can see this happening and we begin, begin to ask why and yeah. what impact is that going to have in the long haul? Absolutely. Very, very cool stuff. You know, kind of like those hummingbirds, I, you know, migrating to that nice Hawaiian tropical habitat where it's 65 to 85 degrees pretty much year round. Uh, my wife and I talked about not coming home. <laughs> we did entertain that possibility. <laughs> I can see why hummingbirds are like, okay, I, I can stay here longer. <laughs> and, you, and you and you may have a lot more competition out there than you do here too, right? <laughs> well, yeah, they, you know, so we did come home. <laughs> Okay, so any other insights, Becca, in regards to the Great Backyard Bird Count or anything that you'd like our listeners to know about the Great Backyard Bird Count? Um, well, first of all, I just want to emphasize this is for everybody. And one of the neat things about GBBC that your listeners may be fascinated about, especially in the northern states, is um, GBBC, we can also see eruptions happening. So these are bird species that usually generally will maybe winter further north, but we start seeing them lower and lower. And, and the question becomes why? And, and that is a good question. So this year we're seeing snowy owls. So perhaps snowy owls are having a hard time accessing enough food resources up where they normally spend their winters. And so they're pushing further south because they're trying to find those resources. I haven't heard if we're having an eruption year with um, evening grosbeaks or um, some of the finch species. Those are some other ones that tend to kind of push down if they're having resource issues. But GBBC comes at that time of year where um, a lot of these birds that are northern 
are in the middle of the deep winter, right? And and we may or may not see them depending on what's going on in the habitat they normally uh, live in. So it's fun. GBBC is like a mystery every year. What will we see and where? <laughs> I love it. Be a bird detective. Figure it all out, right? right. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, I think we've hopefully piqued everybody's interest and, and excitement about the Great Backyard Bird Count. Uh, Becca, could you kind of give the details on, on the dates and all the other things that they need to know about getting started? Absolutely. So the bird count this year runs February 18th until the 21st. So it's a Friday to a Monday. Any of those four days, if you just tell us what you see on Merlin or eBird, we will count you as a participant of the GBBC. And there's some details about that if you want to look into the tools a little more and get some help at birdcount.org, that is our website, birdcount.org. And for those of your listeners who um, either are returning to the GBBC and just want some reminders and tips and tricks about how to ID and what to ID, or if you're brand new, we're doing another webinar for the Great Backyard Bird Count run through the lab. It's going to um, stream on um, the lab website page, Facebook, and Birds Canada, because this is a trifecta effort of three organizations. And that is on February 16th at 2 p.m. Eastern. So anybody who wants to tune in and learn a little bit more about this event and talk to, to people from all of our organizations about it, that might be a good opportunity to learn more about the Great Backyard Bird Count. Well, we'll be sure to put that in our show notes too. get some helpful links all in one place for everybody. They're excited. They know how valuable it is. They're going to be able to learn all about how to participate. And now it's like, okay, how do I, how do I attract the birds in my backyard? I may, you know, I might not be feeding a lot or just a little bit or, you know, pretty routine. What, what do I do to get the biggest bang for my buck out of the GBBC in my backyard? So we're going to kind of transition and talk a little bit about what backyard foods you might want to try to put out there. Do bird food choices matter? Well, they do to the birds. And you can look at it from a very broad stroke to start off. And and if you've been feeding birds at all, you already know, you know, nectar. If you have hummingbirds this time of year, having that nectar out, keeping it fresh, bring in the hummingbirds. Um, suet. Suet is great for attracting woodpeckers, as well as some of those woodland species. I love getting like the bush tits coming in, or maybe chickadees or nuthatches, titmice. Uh, and then you think about finches. What do they like? And usually it's going to be some kind of finch food, like a, a niger or sunflower chips or a blend of that. You can also do that, just very popular, get a nice seed blend mix, and it feeds a lot of different birds especially if you're going to put it in a hopper style or a tube feeder style or even a tray feeder style. Don't forget your ground feeding birds. Having a tray feeder style down low to the ground to keep the food just up off the ground, but allow birds like the juncos or quail to come in. Um, so some nice basics there. Yeah, but like the nutritional imp importance of somebody who's feeding in Canada is so different than like somebody in Arizona, right? Like in terms of just the climates and the needs for the, the birds at the, this time of year. So that that's something important to speak to maybe too. Like if you're in Canada, suet's probably going to be really important. If you're in Southern California, your nectar feeders are more, you know what I mean? Right, right. One of the birds that I've been trying to capture and pull into my house more that I can't capture with a feeder, at least not in my region, is warblers. 
And so I've been planting a lot of small seed flowers right in and around my windows. And sure enough, last year I had several yellow rump warblers feeding right outside my windows nice. on the plants. So I've really been That's trying awesome. to pull in, yeah, some of those birds that are hard to capture. I don't know if you guys get warblers at your feeders. I wish I could. I just don't seem to have success. So the plantings is really where I've been trying to pull them in so I can see them. Yeah, we kind of have a secret weapon. And I don't know if you've ever tried the uh, bark butter, but we have a the whole host butter. of birds. The, yeah, we I don't know what five or six warblers, I think, has been documented coming to it. I have a uh, yellow-throated warbler that religiously it, it nests somewhere in my area and religiously comes uh, the last two years to bark butter. Nice. Uh, I see it, see it a couple of times a day coming out and feeding on the bark butter. So, and then I know we've had pine warblers and yellow rump warblers and a number of other ones, uh, Townsend's warblers coming to the bark butter. So might try that little secret weapon sometime. Yeah. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll have to adjust my uh, <laughs> only feeding in winter strategy so I get some bark butter warblers. <laughs> there you go. There you and go. The, the other secret weapon, besides just a food, is a water source, yes. especially if it's moving water and it's really shallow so they can dip down and bathe. That's where, besides bark butter and getting them in, I get actually get more warbler species with my water yeah. feature. So you've got options. So it's kind yeah. of the trifecta. Do the native plants, get some bark right. butter out there and and, and having a, a water feature. Yeah, that's going to bring in those those extra special birds and more species. So back there was research and we, we have quoted this in the past as research that was done, I think, up in Wisconsin in regards to survival rates. And I think it specifically looked at chickadees and and you know, when are the birds that had access to feeders um, had like a 50% higher survival rate, survival rate than the birds that didn't have access to feeders. Is that still valid, you think? Is that, I mean, I think that that study has been done a couple of times actually, and seems to be yeah, I haven't actually read that research paper, but using the Project Feeder Watch data, which is a lot of what a lot of our feeder um, data comes out of, there is certainly no harm happening to birds that are being supported. So in terms of answering that bigger question of whether we're, we're you know, helping certain bird species, I think that paper is a good example where they looked at a specific species because you mm -hmm. really have to get down to the species level before you can really know if indeed feeders are actually helping birds. So they're certainly not harming birds. Um, and as, I think that's especially true. One thing I would emphasize in our conversation that we recircle is, um, you know, when big storms hit, that's when birds really have a hard time, right? Yeah. Because, you know, seed heads in our gardens get covered. They, you know, maybe they can't even locate food because it's buried. Um, and so mm -hmm. really, you know, that's really important. I think feeders come into place and fill a hole when we have these huge storms that are unexpected, often very cold, um, and the birds struggle. They literally struggle to find resources. So, yeah, we just had a huge uh, storm on the East Coast a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, those would be the times that, yeah, bird feeding really probably does make a huge difference in the middle of winter time for birds to be able to survive. Absolutely. Yeah, I always see feeders as a wonderful complement to just general things we can and should be doing around our home to support birds, water, protecting our windows, keeping the birds safe, um, et cetera, et cetera. So for, feeders are just a wonderful addition to that sort of bigger goal of being able to really provide safe habitat and safe um, safe areas for these birds to live in. And I always get a kick out of it. I'm sure you two can relate to this. The birds uh, in the morning when 
when when before I put feeders out, I mostly use platform feeders because as mm -hmm. Brian was alluding to, I get a lot of diversity in my platform feeder and I love my platform feeder and they'll land on the platform. There's a half an inch to an inch of snow on it and they'll just look in the window. <laughs> Hello, uh, where is the seed? <laughs> and you just gotta love that, right? They're, they I, are tuned in to where it is, and they will let you know that if it's not there, they need it. <laughs> I, I feel that. so good that the scientist is acknowledging that behavior. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the real deal. <laughs> is there data to back that up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, I think it's time to put this one to bed and wrap up. I love having you on board with us today, Becca, you know, our project leader of Great Backyard Bird Count for the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And, and just thank you so much for bringing all of the insights and the information to our listeners today. It was great. Thank you so much, Brian and John. And thank you for the butter bark butter hint. <laughs> um, I'm going to take that and get some w, uh, WBU bark butter and give that a go with my warblers. It was lovely to be here with you all today. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you all see for the Great Backyard Bird Count. Excellent. Most thank you definitely. so much. On behalf of Wild Birds Unlimited, thank you so much for joining us. Please rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Join us next time when Brian and I are going to figure out what we're going to talk about and let nature be our guide. So <laughs> until then, please take care and be safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nature Centered. To subscribe to this podcast, for show notes, or to connect with the Wild Birds Unlimited store nearest you, visit wbu.com slash podcast. Until we meet again, take some time to relax, enjoy the birds, get out in your backyard, and stay nature-centered.